Welcome back to the Dewhawk Dozen podcast. My name is Rachel Mosier. And I'm Neil Bingham. And this is our monthly podcast dedicated to our graduates of the last decade. 12 months, 12 great Dewhawks, countless stories to tell. Today's guest is 2014 grad Est Mungai. Let's do this. So last month, we had a chance to talk with John O'Brien, and we were really excited to have Est as our guest this week. Your nominator believes that you actively live out our lore's dispositions and are an especially great representation of our responsible contributor with your work as a public ally in Washington, D.C., and most currently with your work as a community organizer for the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund in Charleston. So nothing short of amazing work that you're doing to make the world a better place. And our young alumni board um, felt that you would be a perfect person to highlight this month. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. And to get things started, Est, fill us in with some things that you've been up to since graduation. Um, Y'all already kind of covered some of it, but I was a public ally in DC for a year um, where I went to really learn more about policy making. Um, you know, addressing systemic inequities. Um, and that was really awesome. Um, I had considered law school, but actually got recruited into organizing in Charleston, South Carolina, um, which was a really great decision. I've never looked back since. Um, so I was able to live in Charleston, uh, the Charleston area for three years, um, organizing there around um, several issues, uh, criminal justice, education, housing, um, and gained a lot of experience through that. Um, working for the Charleston Area Justice Ministry, which then led me to working with the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, or LDF um, for short. Um, so I've been with them now for the last uh, almost four years, um, and I still work in the Charleston area, um, but I'm based in D.C., so I work in Charleston and the South Carolina as a whole, as well as in Alabama and several other southern states, um, still working on criminal justice issues, but now doing um, more voting rights issues, um, education, um, basically a plethora of issues beyond uh, the ones that I was doing before. So uh, it's been it's been a journey, but I definitely have grown and learned a lot um, in this process. And I very much um, I'm looking forward to several more years of doing this, even though it's tough. So that's what I've been up to. Yeah, it's a, a lot going on. <laughs> Um, in yeah. addition to to kind of all the work you're covering, do you cover a lot of ground too? Do you travel for a lot of this stuff? Or is it all, since you're based out of DC, you're pretty much on home base at all times? No. So pre-pandemic, I was on the road uh, most weeks out of a month. I was home maybe a week or so. Uh, Post-pandemic, uh, obviously, well, we're still in the pandemic. Uh, it's harder um, depending on, you know, what COVID rates are and safety protocols. I do still travel, but not nearly as much as uh, what I used to is we're now doing more digital stuff, you know, virtual convenings, those kind of things. But where we can, we do still like to have the in-person component. Sure. I mean, I feel like that's super important when it comes to education is being able to be face-to-face and have those conversations. Um, with, with all those different areas that you're covering and all the ground you're covering, what does a typical work week look like? I know that's a cliche question and there's not always a clear-cut answer there, but as best as you can summarize, what does that work week look like for you? 
Yeah, it, it changes. There's not like a uniform standard. Um, but I would say, you know, things that happen fairly often is that, you know, I'm involved with several different campaigns. Um, so I have a lot of campaign check-ins. Um, so for each of my individual campaigns, I'll meet with the internal staff at LDF, and then we'll meet with our coalition partners um, externally, usually at least weekly. I also have a lot of individual calls with partners on the ground um, just to check in with them about various tasks and components of the campaign, um, as well as just, you know, um, building good relationships with folks is really important. I work with these folks in these campaigns, but a lot of times often other things will come up that, uh, you know, because of our relationship, they'll reach out to me about or I can reach out to them about. So I have enlisted a lot of individual phone calls. Um, and then we have actual things for our campaigns, whether that's city council meetings, public hearings, um, different actions that are happening. So spending a lot of time um, either preparing for those or executing those as they happen. Um, also do a lot of reading, um, whether it's of bills, uh, newspaper articles of other jurisdictions that are doing similar work. Um, we also, you know, have our own work with like, you know, writing things and op-eds and, and narratives um, and messaging around our different campaigns as well. Um, gosh, I also have a lot of administrative stuff to do as well that I often falls through the crack when I'm trying to get better at. Uh, so yeah, it just, those are the general things that I do during the week and what that looks like and the amount that I'm doing it or what I'm doing it for obviously is what changes a lot week to week. But um, I, I can have meetings anywhere, you know, from 7, 8 a.m. in the morning to 9, 10 o'clock at night some days, just because that's when, you know, um, I'm able to talk or meet with folks um, who particularly work during the day, so they're not always as available to, during work hours. So I just have to have a very flexible schedule uh, to meet all of that. So with all of that that you have going on throughout the week and with all the different campaigns that you've worked on or um, everything in your career this far, what has been one of your favorite accomplishments or what would you say is your greatest mm. accomplishment so far um, or what are you most proud of? <laughs> That's always so tough because um, we've definitely won several victories, but I always say like, we win, but it's kind of, then we're on to the next thing and we don't maybe take as much time to celebrate some of our victories. Um, so I'll just highlight, you know, one victory that I'm proud of um, that I accomplished early on in my career um, was that, so in the case of um, policing in Charleston, particularly, um, we had pushed for um, greater transparency and accountability. Um, you know how the Department of Justice does um, investigations of police departments, but they're obviously don't have capacity to do that for every single police department. Um, but there are organizations um, that have that ability to do racial bias audits of police departments. Uh, so that was one of the first things we identified in the Charleston area that we wanted to happen. Um, and so uh, after uh, a long uh, campaign uh, where, you know, it, it failed in city council of five, seven, which was very disappointing. Um, but a couple of months later, we were able to turn that around um, and get a unanimous vote uh, for a racial bias audit to be conducted of that city. Um, and then several years later, uh, we were able to do the same in the city of North Charleston, which is actually under, under yeah, it's happening right now, that racial bias audit. Um, of, of North Charleston. And obviously it's awesome that these things have happened, that there's reports that are 
detailing what's going on in ways that the police departments can improve. Uh, but the process of actually implementing uh, those, those recommendations and following through and the police departments being more transparent is an ongoing process. So that's why I said we won the victory, we're excited about it, but the follow through and implementation of it is obviously probably more difficult actually. So that's where we're at right now with both cities. Um, but we are excited that we've made it this far and there's potential for um, more improvement in the future. So I'll highlight those two in particular. Yeah, so talking about that uh, achievement specifically, that was a part of your op-ed piece that you had written um, mm -hmm. with a tale of two cities talking about Charleston and North Charleston. Um, and that's almost been three years um, since you wrote yeah. that piece. So looking back on it now, what advice do you have for community members and people who are looking to get more involved in, in their communities to, to kind of take steps toward that? I mean, it's been a long, long time for reflection and to kind of see those things play out. So I'm curious what your insights are now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good, when I got that question, I was reflecting on that. And I think, uh, well, one thing that sticks out for me is that, um, you know, for any person that wants to get involved in this, you know, we went underwent a very thorough research process before we decided upon, you know, this being the, um, you know, proposal that we wanted the cities to move forward on. Um, so I'd encourage folks, one, if you're not already connected, you know, to an organization, um, get connected with one um, that, you know, is doing this kind of work. Um, or has the capacity to do this kind of work and can engage in that and then really take a lot of time um, thoroughly researching um, whatever it is that you want to pursue. Um, so we spent a lot of time talking to other cities that had done similar work, talking to the companies that conduct the work, uh, talking to, you know, other officials um, and people in that field just to learn more about it and then figure out if this was something that was viable for our own community. Um, and even with that process, there's a lot of things that we are still learning now. Um, and so I would say, you know, that's an ongoing process. It's not like you do it and then you're done. You should be always in constant conversation um, and refining of your process because um, one approach does not fit all as, as I wrote in that op-ed, the, the approach we took for Charleston uh, was not the approach we took for North Charleston. We actually had to do a little bit of a strategy uh, change in order to get that accomplished in North Charleston. So you have to be adaptable and flexible um, but also constantly evaluating the, the landscape and figuring out um, what, what is going to be effective and what is not. So Charleston and um, the different areas that you've been working with are a lot different than Dubuque, um, probably yeah. from when you were here as a student. One of your first one-on-one -on -one advisor roles was in our Dubuque Community School District. Mm -hmm. um, did that kind of help you figure out that you wanted to work with educating community members in that role or um, what, what did you learn in that role? Do you think? Yeah, so that role um, where I had a, a, a mentee um, in the sixth grade um, that I used to meet with weekly um, was really awesome because I enjoy one-on-one -on -one time with, you know, uh, community members to really learn their stories, share mine, and, and build that relationship. Uh, but one thing that became obvious, you know, for me in that one-on-one -on -one role was that, you know, even though I, I came and I was, you know, a positive support for that student um, and was able to, you know, help them with different things that they were struggling with occasionally, like with, with schoolwork, um, a lot of the larger issues that they dealt with were, um, you know, things that were outside of their control because it was a school-wide issue um, or it was an issue that they were dealing with at home. 
Um, so I was like, even though I recognize the need for having these services that provide this one-on-one -on -one support to students, um, there's only so much they can do. I also worked when I was in uh, Dubuque at Hillcrest Family Services, um, and I worked at um, the emergency youth shelter, as well as some of the different um, programs that they had um, for youth there. And it was a lot of the same. I worked with their social workers. I was in touch with their attorneys. We had therapists and counselors, counselors that worked with them um, that would address that student's individual needs. Um, or that child's individual needs, but ultimately a lot of the issues that they faced were larger than what we could, you know, address because they were, again, more of a systemic issue. So that's what kind of led me to zoom out and not focus so much on the micro, um, but on the macro and how do we address these things on like a city level, state level, federal level even, um, for um, a lot of these issues that are, you know, just beyond the control of one person to um, impact. Hearing that, I am curious with the NAACP Legal and Defense Education Fund, do you still get a chance to work with a lot of youth or is it people across all ages as well? I mean, to start at sixth grade and seeing the breadth of experiences that you've had, I'm, I'm curious if you still get to kind of flex those middle school muscles with working with uh, the young people today as well. Uh, not as much as I would like. Um, definitely work way more now with obviously adults. And um, I do work with um, a lot of college age students as well, which is good. And occasionally some high school students. But yeah, I don't have obviously as much opportunity uh, to engage uh, with youth as what I used to, particularly now with the pandemic, when I used to be able to be more in person, I could sometimes <laughs> I do more stuff at like, um, you know, community centers or at schools themselves. But um, Hopefully that's something that can change uh, in the future, but for now, um, not as much, no. So I know that you've helped with the Center for Inclusion and Advocacy on one of their live sessions online, speaking to students. And uh, this also isn't your first time on a podcast. You were on On The Run NYC. Um, you've used your voice a lot across a lot of different um, mediums through the internet. How are some other ways that you utilize the worldwide reach of the internet um, to continue sharing your voice and spreading your message? Um, I mean, yeah, as, as I mentioned before with the, you know, with the pandemic, we've had to switch to doing a lot more digital organizing. Um, so hosting, you know, virtual town halls, um, having Twitter storms for parts of different campaigns, um, doing a lot of just producing, you know, flyers and one pagers and those kind of things that can be posted and shared um, digitally has been really huge. Um, and then as for me, like I, uh, <laughs> I, I make a joke with my, uh, with my colleagues a lot that I actually am not the biggest fan of being like out in front um, doing stuff. Like I'll be behind the scenes, I'll be organize it, but I don't want to be like the main thrust of like, uh, you know, the voice of the, of what we're doing because you know, with the different communities that I work with, I really want folks that are living in those communities and experiencing the issues to be front and center. Um, of, uh, you know, the work that we're doing. So I'll occasionally write an op-ed like what I did a couple of years ago, but I, I very generally try not to do that and really try to help um, folks, um, like I said, that are local and are impacted to be the ones that are uh, leading that charge. Uh, so even though I will tweet and I will post things here and there, it's usually more like I'm retweeting. I'm not necessarily um, doing it to be out front, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. You studied politics and you educate young people on voter issues in your line of work and you live in DC. We have to ask, 
on. <laughs> Are there any local co- campaigns in your future? Do you think? No. Um, <laughs> I mean, my parents no. always tell me, you know, never say never. But I, I will say that after having done this work for quite a while now, while I definitely believe there are some, you know, great folks out there that are running for office and are in office. Um, You mentioned on the run podcast, my great friend Althea Stevens won her city council seat in New York City for the Bronx. So very excited about her and watching her campaign and how unfolded learned a lot more. Uh, However, what I will say is that I think that the need for folks that are outside the political process to help shape um, you know, the policy solutions um, that community members are working on or, or want to see um, and to hold those uh, officials accountable for following through on a lot of their promises and implementing these things is just as important, if not more important. So I want to stay that line of work uh, and not so much on the other side of things where things can get a little bit more uh, complicated, for lack of a better word. So, yeah. No, thanks. <laughs> Don't blame me there. It makes yeah. sense. <laughs> You're doing enough work, work on the back end. So <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. So I know that we, you know, to your point, we sent you quite a few questions ahead of time just to give you a little bit of prep. But however, uh, we've got a dozen questions for our Duhok Dozen, where we ask our guest 12 rapid fire questions. Oh, give okay. us the first <laughs> answer that comes to mind. Um, it's not like it's a right or a wrong answer. That's what, you know, John's concern was last time that there's a right answer. There isn't. Um, it's just the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Perfect. Where was your last vacation? Chicago. What was your first ever job? Uh, I was a summer tennis instructor for summer camp. Is your bed made right now? <laughs> what is your go-to karaoke song oh uh waterfalls by tlc Ooh, good call um what movie or show do you quote the most coming to america what was the last tv series you binge watched um hmm. well i'm currently binge watching game of thrones again so I'll, I'll say that are you a morning person or night owl night owl what is your go-to lazy dinner Oh, my go-to lazy dinner is sleep because that means I'm too lazy to have ate anything at all or cooked. Okay. So. <laughs> Who is one yeah. of your heroes? Um, oh, I have so many. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I'll just say my parents um, just because of everything that they sacrificed uh, for me to be where I am today um, and still continue to um, do things that inspire me to, uh, and my, not just in my line of work, for my own personal um, growth and achievement. So my parents, David and Lucy, Dr. David and Lucy. <laughs> what has been your favorite age so far? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, I am about to turn 30. So I'm hoping that will be the best one so far. But if I actually have to pick one, I would say my Kobe year um, when I was 24. Purple or gold? Oh, both. Oh, Loris and the Lakers. Um, yes. And then what is your favorite spot on the Loris College campus? Hmm. I'd probably say um, on the tennis courts. On the tennis courts. Yeah. Nice. Good times. Those 12 questions hopefully weren't too hard for you. <laughs> 
Except that one. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> you tripped up a little bit. Um, so you say the tennis courts are your favorite spot on campus. Tell us a little bit more about your Loris experience, uh, you know, both on the court, in the classroom, just that experience as a whole and, and what you see looking back on that. Yeah, I mean, tennis was one of the main reasons I ended up at Loris, actually. Um, I had never considered playing college tennis. Um, and I was actually taken aback when the coach reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested. Um, and that really, you know, stuck out to me. I was like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, so the funny thing is, I don't know if a lot of people know this. I actually, my freshman year, uh, right before our first big tennis tournament, uh, <laughs> I broke my foot. Uh, there was a water balloon fight at Beckman uh, and somebody came into my dorm, threw a water balloon at me. The person in question denies this to this day, so I won't say their name. Uh, and I chased them down. Um, <laughs> I chased them down, grabbed a water balloon and chased them down. And as I was jumping the steps to go outside, I was wearing slippers uh, and just my whole leg crumpled up under me. And I broke my foot, sprained my ankle, my knee. And my coach was just absolutely stupefied when I told him why I couldn't come to the, to the uh to the first match anymore. And I was out for most of that first season as a result. Um, so that actually really sucked. Um, but I will say that obviously throughout the years, tennis was just really great for me. Um, I would often come back to campus early <clears throat> for tennis um, and it kind of helped ground me for the upcoming school year. Um, and then it also allowed me, um, I think to be more balanced as far as just like, um, you know, with scheduling and that kind of thing, uh, I had to be deliberate about planning time for homework, planning time for other activities, because I had to work around that schedule. So I thought that set me up well for all four years of college. Um, and then uh, I started off as a um, politics major, for sure, took a sociology class with Rick, fell in love and added it as a double major. Um, so I would say both of those degrees in particular have actually um, helped me a lot with my current profession, understanding, again, the micro and the macro, um, as well as understanding systemic things um, that happen um, in our political landscape, as well as society and the different cultures and groups. So um, definitely uh, feel like I'm putting those degrees to good use, thank goodness. Um, and overall, like, um, you know, uh, as, as you all mentioned, we called it back then the IPO office or intercultural programs office. So that was kind of like our home base to go and, and work on stuff, socialize. Um, and, you know, we're really um, supported well by the staff there. So shout out to Cindy Banky, um, at the time, Mish Ellis, Alejandra Pino, uh, as well as Anthony Davis later and Ty Campbell. So um, just really, really great staff and great support from um, the overall Loris community as well through that office. So very much appreciative of all they did and are continuing to do under Sergio. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, there was a lot of my Loris experience, um, but at least academically and from a tennis perspective, um, you know, I definitely, you know, have nothing but fond memories. So you mentioned Rick, um, who is Rick Anderson, right? Mm -hmm. um, who was one of your professors in sociology. And you also studied politics, like you mentioned. What were some of the classics that really, sorry, I'm going to back up. Um, you studied politics and sociology. What were some of the classes that really stuck out to you as being impactful in the line of work that you are in now? Yeah, so I mentioned the intro to social class. Um, 
uh, that Rick taught that I really loved. Um, another class that he taught that I also really enjoyed was race and ethnicity. Um, for social, uh, for um, politics class, um, I loved uh, the class that we had. I believe Budz's taught the class that I was in, Professor Budz's, um, and it was around just kind of the philosophers um, throughout time. Um, that kind of helped shape some of the political theory that we uh, are engaging in today. And I don't remember the names of all these classes. That's a that's a little uh, beyond my memory capability. Uh, but that was a great class, as well as uh, a class taught by Dr. Guru um, that was around uh, again social uh, social theorists. Um, and we got to watch some great films in that class as well. I don't remember the names of all these classes, but these were great classes. Um, but yeah, those are some that stood out. So in addition to your time on the tennis court, uh, you know, your work with Black Student Union and all the classes you took, um, I know that one common thread I've, I've seen that's tied you to a lot of your Duhawk friends, and you even mentioned it with your Kobe year and your love of purple and gold, has been your love of the L.A. Lakers. Uh, when and how did you find your Laker fan friends here on campus? Yeah, it's, uh, I still, I got to think about that because I want to say that um, we all uh you know we used to play like pickup basketball and in the process of finding out that we all were basketball fans and we played pickup basketball we figured out like oh we have some laker fans here uh some of them there were more chicago bulls fans than anything but the few of us that were lakers fans stuck close together um and we went to a laker game one time in milwaukee which was really great um got to see kobe play which is a great memory to this day um and then throughout the years it's also you know kept us in touch so in particular uh, Luis Santoyo and um, Ebony uh, Lewis, now Buchanan. Uh, so we uh, at Post Lores, you know, have like a group chat that's all uh, Lakers thing related. It's also as the group, the group chat is actually called Loris Lakers Familia. Uh, that's how close we identify all those things together. Um, and we got to go to LA a couple of years ago um, when Kobe's jersey was retired. Um, and attend that game and watch that happen. So we've just always been really close as a result of that. And when I said my last vacation was in Chicago, actually was in Chicago to see my sister, um, but also Luis and Ebony were there. Um, and of course, Lakers things always come up when we're together. And Ebony just had her first baby. So I got a shout out to Ebony, whose his name is Taylan Kobe Amir Buchanan. So the first two names, uh, Taylan is the name of one of the Lakers players and obviously Kobe. So the connection is very deep there. Uh, so, and it will be probably for the rest of our lives. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, it kind of works out in your favor then that the purple and gold gets to stay the same between the two. Exactly, exactly. That's why I was like, oh, it was meant to be when I learned what the Laura's colors are. So you are mentioning quite a few names that I remember as a student when we were first years and you guys were seniors, I know, I remember having classes with Ebony. She's amazing. Um, and Luis, and, um, I remembered you, like I said, before we even started from the tennis and we had a, bun a bunch of mutual friends that way. But, um, we, you said that you found a, a great community with the center for inclusion of advocacy. Um, what, or even who you mentioned a few names before, but what made that space so special for you as a student? Um, Community is strong here at Loris, and um, I know the Center for Inclusion and Advocacy thrives on community. And um, I just like your input on that. 
Yeah, no, it was great because obviously um, it, it had great leadership. So as I mentioned, like my first year when I was there, um, it was led by Alejandra Pina and Cindy Benke and Mishreen Ellis. Um, and they just welcomed us, welcomed us in um, and really helped us acclimate well to Laura. So um, I had, you know, already come here for tennis. So luckily I had met a few folks already, but particularly for folks that were coming from really far away, uh, not from the Midwest at all. Um, it was a great kind of place to bring us all together to learn about for those not from the Midwest, Midwest cultures and like, for example, adjusting to the uh, Midwest winters for some folks. I, I was from Minnesota, so that wasn't a problem. Um, but it was just, uh, like I said, that that space itself was really great for people to relax and hang out between classes um, and talk about any issues they were having and get connected to any resources um, that they, you know, maybe didn't know were available. And, you know, just for my relationships and connection to that office, I was the, um, <clears throat> that was my work study. I worked in that office uh, for my uh, junior year and, so, uh, and senior year um, and worked on a mentor program that would connect incoming students with um, current students um, to help them also get more acclimated um, to Loris when they came. And so that was something that was really important to me. Uh, to have that. Um, and then obviously somebody mentioned the Black Student Union. Um, so being able to restart the Black Student Union and be supported by that office as well was really important for us um, because it made us feel seen. It made us feel like, um, you know, we had a voice and we got to plan different events and things. Um, you know, we did protests on campus. Um, we did different, you know, cultural events um, that I thought were really important um, and really enriched my experience and hopefully others experience at Lower Stead as well. So, uh, S, you know, thank you for being on and joining us today. We did this with John last time, and I, I, I have the same question for you before we sign out. What advice do you have for our listeners at home before we uh, close out today? Uh, I mean, I think the advice that I use would apply to to anybody, which is that, um, and I think I've said this on the prior on the prior cast, is like your your life and the experiences that you have, it's what you make out of them. Um, so, some you have to actively pursue. Um, in order to make things happen the way that you want to happen, they're not always going to manifest themselves in a way that you like. And so, you know, you got to be willing to put the work in to get them, you know, to show up the way that you want. And so I feel like I did a lot of that at Loris, um, as far as the groups that I was a part of and the things that I did, um, I really, you know, I felt that I had to go above and beyond to get things to work out the way I wanted. And when I did, it usually paid off. And that's applied to me um, in life as well. Um, in the different campaigns that I work on, work and organizations that I do, um, what I put in tends to be what I get out. And a lot of times there's an even higher return on investment, but I have to be willing to put the work in. Um, and usually when you do that, it also opens up other doors and other opportunities for you um, because, you know, other folks recognize uh, what you're doing um, or it sparks something in other um other folks or other opportunities just because of that work that you put in. And so um, always, you know, give 100, 110% if you can, um, and it will pay off, uh, but also be strategic about it. You don't need to be giving 110% to everything. You got to pick and choose your battles because otherwise you're going to burn out. So that's the advice I would give. Not too shabby. I mean, I think we can all <laughs> use a little bit of that that motivation mm -hmm. reminder. Um, yeah. So really, thank you so much for taking the time. You even said it was your day off. So thank you for taking your, some time out of your day off to join us today. Um, don't I forget, day off. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't forget to our listeners at home, um, mark your calendars. It's going to be on the 12th of each month where we will be introducing the newest member of our Duhawk Dozen. You can visit alumni.loris.edu slash Dozen to learn more or to nominate a Duhawk. Thank you to the Young Alumni Advisory Board for sponsoring this podcast and Trent Hanselman for producing. Go, Go Duhawks! Duhawks.